Hi, I'm Hannah, and I'll be reading God's Word from page 287 in the Church Bible. And it's 1 Samuel 16. That's 287. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Thank you very much, Hannah, for uh, reading the Bible to us. It'd be great if you can uh, keep it open. Um, and, you know, well done for making it through all that rain to church this evening. I was afraid there wasn't going to be anybody here. Um, actually, I was really impressed with Hannah, who's just read the Bible to us, and Jack there as well. Saw that when we arrived, they both arrived on their bikes, would you believe it, looking absolutely drenched. So um, special thumbs up to you guys. So this evening we're starting a new series uh, looking at the life of David, uh, perhaps Israel's most famous king. And uh, our title this evening actually doesn't come from the passage that's just been read to us, but from 1 Samuel chapter 13, where Saul, uh, Israel's first king, is told that God has rejected him as king and that God has sought out, quotes, a man after his own heart to be king instead. Saul, your days are numbered. God has his man. And this is a man after his own heart. It somehow feels appropriate, doesn't it, on this jubilee weekend to be exploring this passage about someone coming to uh, the, the, uh, the throne of Israel. But what does it mean, a man, a person, after God's own heart? Well, it's a great phrase 
It's, you know, you could sell a lot of books if you use that as the title. But what on earth does it mean? And to be honest, I've been thinking about that last few weeks, preparing for this evening, and realized I honestly had no idea what it meant. So um, I read some books, and that didn't help either. So I then did an internet search to see if there were some interesting sermons out there and blogs and things. And I found some blogs where people would list out characteristics of things in David's life that they liked and decided that must be what it meant to be a man after God's own heart. Because if God, if I like it, then God must like it too, I suppose, is the logic. And as I thought about it, I thought, ah, I'm not sure that really helps that much either. Maybe we need a completely different approach to the passage. And then I stumbled on it in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, Hmm. for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Now, I really like that. I really like that. Do you know, in 2016, the BMJ published a, a study of 120,000 Britons looking at the impact of height and BMI, body mass index, on socioeconomic outcomes. And a professor, Tim Frayling of Exeter University, who led the study, he concluded, if you took the same man, and it was particularly a male reference, say, five foot ten inches high, and you made him five foot seven instead and sent him into life, he would be about 1,500 pounds worse off per year. That's awful, isn't it? I'm, I'm expecting a little bit of kind of reaction here. So it's obvious, the point of the passage. Society is prejudiced against small men, and this passage is saying... Don't underestimate the little guy, especially if he's five foot seven. I love that. I don't really think it's quite the point, though, do you? Maybe just slightly closer to target on that verse is that God doesn't really evaluate us on the basis of how we look, but on who we are inside. End of verse 7. The Lord doesn't look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And in a profound sense, I think that is what this passage is about. But even so, what does it mean? What does it mean? Because so easily, it can mean nothing much more than it's good to like ugly people as long as they're nice. Do you know what I mean? That's just so Saccharin. I need something more than just another chapter about niceness. So I was scratching my head, and in the end, a sermon by a guy called Tim Keller, who I'm a big fan of, rescued me. I don't believe in preaching other people's sermons, but it's only right to acknowledge that quite a, the, quite a lot of the insight I'm sharing this evening comes from him. And our problem, Keller says, is that we try to move in passages like this straight from David to us. And when we do that, we end up with selective, superficial, moralistic conclusions that don't really work. But Jesus tells us to read the scriptures differently. 
to that in John 5, 39, where he's debating with the Pharisees and he's saying to them that uh, they refuse to, uh, to, to come to him. And they, they, he says, you, you study the, the scriptures in order to, to, to find out how to live. And he says, these are the scriptures that testify about me. Now, he's talking there about the Old Testament scriptures because they were the only scriptures that the Pharisees knew. And what's he saying? Those scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, they're not really about me. They're not even ultimately really about David's. Jesus is claiming them for himself. He's saying, these are the scriptures that testify about me. So if I read an Old Testament narrative and I just quickly make it all about me, chances are, I'm misreading it. According to Jesus, first and foremost, they are about him. And of course, he said something very similarly on the road to, well, just after the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, where he goes through all the major sections of the Old Testament, the law, the writings, and the prophets, and and he explains how all of them talk about him. In other words, don't go straight from David to us. Go from David to Jesus and then to us. So that's what I was going to try and do with this passage. And really the key phrase that enables us to do that is the one in verse 6. Let me read. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely, here's the phrase, the Lord's anointed stands before me. The Lord's anointed. That's going to be our key phrase for this evening. The Lord's anointed. Because the Hebrew word anointed is the word Messiah, its Greek equivalent, is Christos or Christ. And that idea of the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah, had burned in Samuel's heart for a very long time. See, just after he was born, Samuel's mum prayed this extraordinary prophetic prayer about God's plan to overthrow the proud and the violent and to rescue the poor and to protect his servants. And it ends, 1 Samuel 2, the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, his Messiah. That's just like the moment after he's been born, virtually, well, shortly after. So this vision of the Lord's anointed, this Messiah King whom God would send, who would rescue his people, who would raise the poor, who would lift the needy, that vision had long burned in Samuel's heart. And it's like his whole life is about trying to find the Lord's anointed. Who is the one that God is going to send? Well, a few chapters later, he anoints, note the language, he anoints Saul as Israel's first king, chapter 10, verse 1. And hopes run very high. But it doesn't take very long before Saul starts to mess things up, really. He ignores God's instructions and takes matters into his own hands time and again. So that in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 13, we read these words where Samuel is talking to Saul. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the commands the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept 
the Lord's commands. Now, just notice the waiting there. You have not kept the Lord's commands. You see, for Saul, power was not something you used to fulfill God's intentions. For Saul, power was something you used as you felt best. To quote Bishop Cotterell from the sermon on Friday in the uh, Diamond Jubilee, no, Platinum Jubilee celebration, the best leaders are those who know how to be led. You see, that's the kind of leader God wants to be king of his people. A leader who leads as one first led by God himself. In other words, he wants a king whose heart burns as his own heart burns. How does his heart burn? We'll go back to chapter 2. With a passion to rescue his people, to raise the poor, and to lift the needy. That's the vision for God's anointed that burns in the heart of God. That's the vision for God's anointed that every king of Israel is meant to fulfill. And that's the guy that that Samuel is looking for. And Saul has proved not to be that kind of leader. It all comes to a head a couple of chapters later, chapter 15, over the battles for the Amalekites. Uh, which in God's mind was an act of judgment to destroy them for their wickedness. But it wasn't that in Saul's mind. No, Saul was just approaching it as any other Middle Eastern king would. It was a fight to gain wealth and power and imperial advantage. And so he ignores God's instructions, and just like any other king would, he plunders their wealth and takes their prisoners as bargaining chips to get more power and more wealth. He's not following the Lord's instructions. And so, chapter 15 and verse 36, 26, hold on, where is it? 26, Samuel says to Saul, I will not go back with you. You have, brackets again, rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Which is why when we get to the end of chapter 15, Samuel is mourning. He's not just mourning because he's kind of just generally a little bit sad or was a bit fond of Saul and just needs to get over it a bit. No, he's mourning because he has this longing, this passion for the Lord's anointed. And he hoped Saul was going to be the Lord's anointed. And yet that vision has been frustrated and unfulfilled. That's how we meet Samuel, at the beginning of chapter 16, where the Lord steps in and says, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. What he's going to learn, first of all, is that the Lord's anointed is often an unlikely choice. Who'd have thought that Steve Jobs, orphan and college dropout, would end up being the founder of what was until recently the world's most valuable company, Apple? No one would have thought that, but he was. Who'd have thought that David, the youngest and therefore the smallest of Jesse's sons, in that backwater of Bethlehem, would become Israel's greatest anointed king? No one, not even Samuel. But he was. Not because the little guy is always the best, sadly. That would be a nice way to read the narrative. But 
Because God has a history of choosing the most unlikely people to do his work. Notice that is what's going on. End of verse 1. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. This is God's choice. And it's an unlikely choice. Let's follow the story through. Samuel is worried about Saul's uh, uh, Saul's reaction if he goes around anointing successors to him. So he tells God about it, and God gives him a wise plan. Um, Middle of verse 2, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. That's something that Samuel often did, so hey, that's kind of normal. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. And that's what happens. It works. He goes to the town. The elders of the town are a bit jumpy, but reassured. Jesse is prepared for the fact that something's going to happen, end of verse 5, and then the whole thing gets underway. So first of all, here comes Eliab, or Eliab, with a physique like Brad Pitt, and almost as sporty, I guess, as Chris Webb. And Samuel is like blown away. But God isn't. Verse 7 again, the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Okay, it's not him. So let's get the next one. And they come one after another. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The last few are not even named. And it's a no each time. Seven down, none to go it seems, but no, actually a little bit more, verse 11. Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Huh. Well, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Just a nice little note about that. We won't sit down until he arrives. Remember, sacrifice, animals, cooked, feast. Okay? Sit down to eat. We're not going to sit down until David arrives. It's a very good way to get your own way with hungry alpha males. Tell them, you're not going to eat until you've given me what I'm asking for. So David is brought, verse 12. He sent for him, had him brought in. And he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. David The shepherd boy is called away from his sheep and chosen and anointed by God to be the shepherd king of his people Israel. The Lord's anointed, so often the unlikely choice. And who would have thought that generations later, one of David's descendants, an everyday carpenter born in Bethlehem, Growing up in despised Nazareth would be chosen to be God's anointed Messiah and the ultimate shepherd king of his global people. Who'd have thought that? But he was, and his name is Jesus. And he wasn't striking in his appearance. He wasn't from a background of great privilege or high education. But God called him and anointed him to be the saviour of the world. And right here in 1 Samuel, a whole thousand years before Jesus was born, the way is being prepared for Jesus, the Lord's anointed, to come. 
an unlikely choice. Now, much more briefly. Number two, the Lord's anointed is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel went to Ramah. I'm sure most of you remember the name Billy Graham. Billy Graham was a farmer's boy from North Carolina who went on to become the best-known evangelist of all time. It's estimated that he preached live to 210 million people in 185 countries. But you know, the curious thing is if you listen to Billy Graham's sermons, and I hope this is okay to say, they were frankly pretty ordinary. No bells and whistles, nothing particularly adventurous or out there or hyper-creative. But it's estimated that over two million people said yes when Billy Graham called them to give their lives to Christ. Two million people. Astonishing. How come? From kind of ordinary sermons. Friends, it's called the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's how come. And it's a great theme to pause on on this Pentecost Sunday. In fact, the language in verse 13 is even more striking in the Hebrew. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord rushed powerfully on David. That's the language. He rushed on him. This was a great surge of divine power that rested on David as he's called to lead. And in the chapters that follow, we see it. The next chapter, he's felling Goliath, Israel's great enemy. The little guy does win over the big guy there. And then David goes on to become their greatest poet, one of their great spiritual leaders, their most effective king. Not because of some kind of small man syndrome with all its compensations, but through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Lord's anointed is powerfully filled with the Spirit. And of course, at Jesus' baptism, Matthew tells us that heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove on Jesus and alighting on him. Peter later on tells how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Jesus is the ultimate anointed one, the ultimate anointed of the Lord, of Yahweh, powerfully filled with the Holy Spirit to serve God's purpose in God's power. The anointed of the Lord is empowered by the Spirit of the Lord. Thirdly, even more briefly, the Lord's anointed is called to reign on his behalf. Remember, end of verse one, I've chosen one of his sons to be king. It's kind of obvious, but it does feel like a good theme on this Jubilee weekend. Someone appointed to be sovereign over their people. David is anointed to be king, but not just any old king, but a king who knows how to be led as well as how to lead, as we saw earlier. A king who reigns for God. This is how the New Testament looks back on him. Acts 13, 22. After removing Saul, he made David their king, 
God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Can you see how clear that is? To be the man after God's heart, the person after God's heart, is to be the person who will do everything that God wants you to. The leader who knows how to be led. The leader who listens before they speak. That's the kind of king David is appointed to be. And of course, it's actually what every human being is called to be. We're called to reign in creation as God's image bearers, representing him and living out his wisdom, his righteousness, his justice, and his truth in all creation. It's what all human beings were to do. And therefore, it's what Israel's kings were to exemplify. And it's what Jesus did in absolute perfection. John 14, 31, I love the Father, Jesus said, and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. The Lord's anointed is called to reign on his behalf. And then, finally, the Lord's anointed is formed through suffering. See, if you read on, just a quick sneak preview, but if you read on from here, the, uh, the, the journey's gonna be very tough. First, there's, there's gonna be a lot of waiting because Saul's son, Jonathan, who's actually a great guy who become one of David's great friends, he's the true heir biologically. So how's this all gonna end? It can only end in tears one way or another. It's gonna be a lot of waiting and pain. Meanwhile, while he's waiting, David is going to become the object of Saul's jealousy and insecurity to the point that he ends up being treated as a traitor and persecuted as an outlaw, living on the fringes of his society and beyond his society, out of Israel, the outcast. But those are the experiences that will form him, that will prepare him to lead and to shepherd the people of God. It's no surprise, is it? I mean, here's a question. Who do you want to talk to when you feel beaten up? When you feel beaten up, do you want to talk to someone who never feels beaten up and who just dismisses your pain? You don't, do you? When you feel beaten up, you want to talk to somebody who themselves knows what it likes to, what it feels like to be beaten up. They're the people that can help you because they've been formed through suffering. And so Jesus, the true anointed of the Lord, Hebrews 5 verse 8, learned obedience through what he suffered. And he's able to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, Hebrews 4 verse 14, because he was tempted in every way just as we are, and yet did not sin. And ultimately, he carried all our weaknesses, our failures, our sins to the cross. He carried them as if they were his own and suffered their punishment for us so that the penalty could be lifted from us. And then he rose to life as the son of God in power, having defeated sin and death and the devil, the Lord's anointed before whom every knee will bow. So, four things from the passage about the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed is an unlikely choice. The Lord's anointed is empowered by the Spirit. The Lord's anointed is called to reign on his behalf. The Lord's anointed is formed through suffering. Interesting, perhaps. But where does it land for us? What does it mean? 
Well, first and foremost, it lands for us by calling us to trust the Lord's anointed, to invest our hope and our confidence in Jesus, the unlikely savior and ruler, anointed by the spirit of God to bring the kingdom reign of God and to set us free through the cross. The whole of the Bible is about him. The whole of history is about him. And therefore we are called to make the whole of our lives about him. So let me ask you the simple question. Is Jesus, the Lord's anointed, your king this evening? Is he actually in charge of your life? Because that's the main lesson from this passage. He's the Lord's anointed and he's calling us to trust him. But if he is your king, there's something else. And this is perhaps surprising, but it's there. You share in his anointing. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 21 and 2. It is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ, in the anointed. He anointed us and set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Do you get that? In the anointed one, in the Christ... We too are anointed by the same Holy Spirit. We are what Tim Keller calls the little anointed ones. In Christ, sharing his anointing. Filled with his same spirit. That's fantastic. Because what it tells us is that we shouldn't write ourselves out of the script of God's kingdom purposes Because we don't feel that we're that impressive. Because we don't have glamorous looks or an impressive personality. The Lord's anointed is often unlikely. And you might feel very unlikely. Very overlooked. With nothing to offer. But the Lord can anoint you to fulfill his purposes. And to build his kingdom. So don't write yourself out of the script. Instead, this Pentecost Sunday, I want to urge you, open your life wide to the filling of the Holy Spirit who loves to take the weak and make them strong and who gives gifts to every one of us to serve in and to advance his kingdom reign. But as you open your life to the Spirit, And as you get a vision for what God might like to do with your life, never forget that great leaders know how to be led, first of all. God's calling is never a calling to do your own thing and to make yourself look smart. It's always a calling to do God's thing and to make Jesus famous. And as you take that journey, don't be surprised that the journey will involves suffering and setback and hardship. Because that's the very thing that will make you the servant, perhaps even the leader that he desires you to be. And even more, that's the very thing that will make you like Jesus. So yes, in your attitude to others and in your attitude to yourself, learn to be like the Lord who doesn't look on the outward appearance, but value those whose hearts burn 
after his heart. And ask yourself the question, how is my heart? What does it burn with? Does it burn with passion for myself, my reputation, my pleasure, my success? Or does it burn with God's heart to save the poor, to lift the needy, and to bring salvation to the nations? Let's pray together. And Father, we ask you on this Pentecost Sunday to come among us by your Holy Spirit. We ask you, Lord, to fill us afresh with his power and to shape our hearts after your own heart, that the things that you long for would become increasingly the things that we long for. That you'd lift us above a life simply of pursuing our pleasure and minimizing our pain. And that under the anointing of the Spirit, you would make us agents of your kingdom in the world. Filled with your power, ready to suffer as we serve you. Confident in your victory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.